An excerpt from Dante's Divine Comedy, Inferno, Canto One. Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. Ah me, how hard a thing it is to say. What was this forest savage, rough and stern, which in the very thought renews the fear? So bitter is it, death is little more, but of the good to treat, which there I found. Speak will I of other things I saw there. I cannot well repeat how there I entered, so full was I of slumber at the moment, in which I had abandoned the true way. But after I had reached a mountain's foot, at that point where the valley terminated, which had with consternation pierced my heart, upward I looked and I beheld its shoulders, vested already with that planet's rays which leadeth others right by every road. Then was the fear a little quieted, that in my heart's lake had endured throughout the night which I had passed so piteously. And even as he who with distressful breath forth issued from the sea upon the shore turns to the water perilous and gazes, so did my soul that was fleeing onward turn itself back to re-behold the pass, which never yet a living person left. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. Hey, Holly. Hey, Beans. That opening is going to make so much more sense in a little while. Okay. <laughs> I promise. So just hang in there and you're going to be like, oh, now I want to go back and listen to those words. I just love when you speak Dante's Aww. Inferno to me. Thanks. I do it all the time. <laughs> you should too. I'm just like, let's read Divine Comedy. And I'm like, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then we both go to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> so this week, as no one was able to guess, and I posted like clues on Instagram and nobody got it, we are covering the Los Feliz murder mansion and all of its many secrets and mysteries. This is a really great series of stories, I mm-hmm. think. And it's even better than I thought before I began researching it. And there is a lot out there on this house. So you guys have probably heard a version or two of this story or at least fragments of it, but maybe not. Who knows? I haven't heard anything. No? No. Ooh. Well, some of this story is sad, yes, but some of it is also rather poignant, which is something we don't get a whole lot of over here. Found myself smiling and even shedding a tear here and there. Oh, I know. So I found this is really lovely, but it's also really bad for my skin. All that salt and forehead wrinkling. Right. Certainly hasn't done me any favors. And so once again, I'll be needing a remedy. I tried the tears of my enemies, but I am bad at making people cry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then I thought, maybe I could use some water that spent the night under the full moon. But I left the jar open and a bunch of bugs got in it. So it looks like I'm going to have to turn to a slightly more experimental cure. A tiny teaspoon of shimmering 
validation, a hill we're dying on. And lucky for us, our fiends can provide it. But how? You are surely asking yourself by now, because if you're dedicated enough, you've memorized this opening bit, probably. I, I was asking. I know. You're yeah. doing it in your head this time. Yeah. Sometimes you can't help it and you do it out loud. Yeah. That's exciting. I was I was deciding, like, did that did that um tune sound good? Was I on key? You were. It was perfect. <laughs> now they're all asking how. Okay. <laughs> and I will tell you. Simply head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. And as October is right in our sights, we really want to move forward enthusiastically. Yes. Give someone you know the gift of a new spooky podcast this spooky season. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah. I swear. That's a great. Gift. Yeah, it's a great gift. And it's free. Yeah. So you save as well. And if you want more We Would Be Dead in Your Life, you can support us over on Patreon. Ooh, it's a basic Patreon this week. I like it. There, for just a few dollars a month, you will get access to our extra mini-sodes, our entire catalog of 30-minute horror movies, our weekly after-show host mortem, which is available in both video and just audio formats. So if you want to see our faces, you can, but if you don't want to see any faces at all, you don't have to. Maybe you can't register faces. Maybe you can. And that's okay. In which case, just listen. Yeah, it's fine. You'll also get special gifts in the mail from us, the opportunity to enter special merchandise giveaways, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. And if all of that is too much for you, you can simply follow us on social media. We are at Would Be Dead Pod everywhere and anywhere. You can like our content, share our content, like and share our content, throw us a comment, participate in a conversation, post about your favorite episode, tell us when you're listening, tell a friend. Tell a neighbor. Tell the ghost in your neighbor's attic. What's their name? Guinevere. Ooh, she's spooky. Yeah. Then your friends and Spooky Guinevere. I would want that to be my whole name. I'd be like, I'm Spooky Guinevere. <laughs> I love that. What What can that be my character in? I'd like to play her forever. Anyway. <laughs> then your friends and Spooky Guinevere can become fiends and we can all hang out together. Cool. I'm going to think of something where I can play Spooky Guinevere. I like it. It's coming. Maybe you can write it. In my free time, I'll do it. Cool. I have like a million projects working around in my head. <laughs> Lastly, keep an eye out for information on this year's live show and Halloween party at Cape May Brewing Company. We had such a good time last year that we decided we were going to do it again. Yeah. Yeah, it was fun. It was so fun. Super fun. So wear your best costumes and get ready to sing along with Leslie because I'm pretty sure that's going to happen. It might. May, it might not, though. I don't know. I just get ready. I just do what I want. Yeah. But, like, being ready is fine. Oh, yeah. For sure. So, like... Warm up. Them warm up. Exactly. Forms. So, just be ready in case. Because it's bound to be a really good time. And I know a bunch of you guys last year were upset that you couldn't make it. So, this gives you another opportunity. And if you were there, we're going to be in somewhere just slightly quieter this year. So, you'll be able to hear the story a little bit better. Yeah. Which will be really fun. And I'm looking forward to that. All right. I think that's all I have for this week. Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? I can't think of one thing. Not a single, not a thing. Nothing. Nothing. No. All right, then. On with the show. Los Feliz, California is a desirable place to live. And yes, it is Los Feliz. And also, yes, it is supposed to be Los Feliz, Spanish for the happy. 
But years and years of whites whiting things up has changed the pronunciation and forced it to stick. Like, people there will correct you. So say it wrong, or they'll tell you you did it wrong. So I will repeat. Los Feliz is a desirable place to live. It is just a short drive from both Griffith Park and downtown Los Angeles and boasts gorgeous views, a charming downtown area of its own, and more high-end vegan eateries than you can shake a stick at. Sounds great. Yeah, an ethically sourced, totally organic stick, please. Yes. Yeah, or I'm not here for it. So it's easy to see why the rich and famous flock to its very steep driveways. How rich and how famous? Okay, here are some current residents for you. Kristen Bell, John Hamm, Angelina Jolie, Katy Perry, Debbie Lovato, Zac Efron, and the list goes on and on. So, real rich and real famous. Yeah. The houses in Los Feliz are just as diverse and noteworthy as its residents, ranging from small, close-together bungalows to sprawling, early 20th century Spanish-style mansions. And one such mansion sits at 2475 Glendower Place. Set back from the street and high into a hill, the sprawling 1920s Spanish Revival Mansion is not exactly easy to access from the street. There is a front gate and a sort of winding set of 51 concrete stairs leading from the street to the front door. So it's steep. You have to climb. I mean, they, they do wind. But there's a lot of, when they say the Hollywood Hills, they mean hills. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, That's why everyone's in shape. Seriously, they're hiking everywhere. A rather recent-looking chain-link fence protects the property at this point uh, from looky-loos. But it's not hard to get past. It's a chain-link fence, and the house was made to be seen, so the large windows did eagerly show the inside of the house. In fact, its interior staircase is visible from a large window in the front of the building, which a lot of people find kind of odd. But I guess if you're trying to showcase your stairs, it makes sense. The hill provides a sort of stage for this considerable structure in its present condition to loom over the well-manicured palm tree-lined neighborhood. So it's set up there below its, you know, windy staircases and driveways. So it really looks like you should be looking at it. But what is its present condition? Well, uh... Still standing, I suppose, is the best way to put it. But it's listed on Zillow currently for over $5 million. Wow. And the funny thing is, the house is only shown in photographs for what it could be. So they had a professional designer come in and make a mock-up of what you could do renovation-wise with it. However, they don't show what the house actually looks like (laughs) inside, which is mostly gutted in some places down to the studs. Wow. Yeah, it is a real big lie. Even the front lawn is like lush and green with like landscaping. And really, the front lawn, yeah, is like a Brillo (laughs) pad of brown dead grass. Wow. Yeah. Some original things remain in the home, a porcelain tub here, the mirrored fireplace there, but it's mostly empty now. But that wasn't always the case. For a great many years, 2475 Glendower Place sat abandoned and utterly frozen in time. A terrible thing occurred behind those walls. And after it was over, the house and all of its contents just stopped. Wow. Mm -hmm. Built in 1921 for a wealthy family, the house went on to be owned by three families over the course of its active years. The last of the three was the Perelson family, who purchased the property in 1956. Just three short years later, Dr. Harold Perelson would, as legend has it, wake up in the middle of a December night, 
smash his wife's head in with a ball-peen hammer, then wander into his oldest daughter Judy's bedroom and attempt to kill her. However, Dr. Perelson only landed one blow to Judy's head before waking her up. Then he'd look at his horrified, screaming, blood-soaked daughter and tell her to lie still, because it would all be over soon. Judy would then make a run for it, leaving blood smears on her light switch plate, wall, and the door as she exited. Dr. Perelman would then encounter his two younger children and tell them that they were simply having a nightmare and they should go back to bed before wandering into the bathroom where he proceeded to drink acid, stagger into Judy's room, and die. Oh. Yeah. Grim. For her part, Judy ran out the front door and to a neighbor's house for help. The first neighbor wouldn't let her in because they didn't recognize her because she was so soaked in blood. The second, however, opened the door, listened to Judy's story, and then went back into her house to discover Harold and his wife dead and the younger Perelsons cowering in fear. The neighbor called the damn cops. Early the following morning at this point, the police show up, as did an ambulance. Dr. Perelson and his wife were taken away by the coroner. Police investigated the scene and found Judy's story to be accurate, then filled in the blanks. After they were finished, the crime scene was left draped in a few white sheets, bodies gone, of course. Then the doors were locked, and no one entered that house again. Wow. Mm-hmm. I can't believe, so nothing happened with that first house. They were just like, no, get away, you bloody, you bloody wench. No, they didn't <laughs> let her in. They were like, ah, no. We'll expand on this all later. This is just the story as it stands in a legend. I gotcha. In 1960, the house and all that was in it sold to another family, but this family did not stay. They moved in very briefly, putting boxes of their things among the detritus of the Perelson's interrupted life. Then one night, all of a sudden, they left. They got in their cars in the middle of the night and fled, never to return to get even the boxes of things they put there. The doors were locked, and not a soul returned after that night, not even a realtor to appraise or attempt to sell the property. The house would sit, crime scene, Christmas tree, blood spatter, moving boxes, and all for the next 60 years. The doctor's angry spirit still looking for an end to his nightmare. Most people say it was this very spirit that drove the new owners to flee in the middle of the night, much like the Lutzes in Amityville. Okay. If you came to our last live show, you'll know that story. (laughs) So how do we know all the Perelson's things stayed in the house? Well, there happened to be a great many windows and for a time, no fence. And eventually, people are going to start looking and then they're going to get tired at looking in windows and break in, of Mm. course. It wasn't hard to do. There were a lot of windows and nobody complained if one or two of them were broken because nobody wanted to really take ownership of this house. People would say that from the outside windows, you could see the Christmas tree with presents still under its plastic boughs. They said the Perelson's furniture and personal items, the blood on the wall, all of it remained. And they could see it through these windows. People who made their way into the house have photographed it in total disarray. And you can see these pictures online. They're all there. And I'll post some of them in our photo suite in our stories this week. There's food still in the cabinets, dishes drying out on a rack, clothing still in the closets, Judy's hand-painted light switch plate that says Judy on it in her room streaked with blood still there. It's all in the photographs, and they're very easy to find. 
People would hold seances inside. They would even have picnics on the floor in the spacious third floor ballroom. What a nice place for a picnic. I know. Let's go to Murder House. I'd be so mad if John was like, I have a date for us. John would love that date. I would hate it. He'd be like, let's go to the Murder House. Get some charcuterie. This is where I die. I would love that. (laughs) I would totally go. I know there's like a lot of um, moral ambiguities about murder tourism. So I I wouldn't want to be like visiting somebody's horrible memories. But this house has more legendary status to it than others. So anyway. The once stately home had become an underground hotspot for urban explorers. That's just people that break into abandoned Mm -hmm. houses and take pictures. Such a nice name. I know they've given themselves a very nice name. And ghost hunters alike. They're all looking for evidence, be it of this plane or beyond, of the infamous Dr. Perelson. And it's there in abundance. Or it was, anyway. Oh, boy. What do you think all these people would do if they knew that not one, not two, but three other people died in that very home before the Perelsons ever set foot in it. Wow. They'd probably be super chill and not change anything, right? They'd be fine. I am, of course, kidding. They would lose their mind. (laughs) Oh, wait, did none of you guys know that either? Well, it's true, but strangely enough, no one ever talks about these deaths, even though they really do kind of spice up the story a little bit. Mm. If you think this whole thing sounds too far-fetched to be true, you're not alone. Plenty of people have wondered about the house. Why on earth would a $5 million mansion in Hollywood sit in suspended animation for 60 years? Someone owned it. Why wouldn't they sell it? And why wouldn't you clean up the bloody crime scene or remove the ill-fated family's artifacts? Some urban explorers have walked away with artifacts from the house. Some take Dr. Perelson's stationery articles of clothing, they've taken notes and patient files, so it most assuredly was there. And what if Dr. Perelson? What does it take for a respected, wealthy cardiologist to turn into a family annihilator on a dime? And what happened to the family who owned the house for those suspended 60 years? Did they really leave in the middle of the night because the the ghost of Dr. Perelson came looking for blood? Or was there another reason? Lastly, can a house really make a person kill their family out of nowhere. Boy, oh boy, this is quite a story to unpack, isn't it? Yes. All right, well, let's start pulling some threads and see where it gets us. Oh, good, so we're going to unpack it? Yeah, we are. Oh, cool. Let's unpack okay. it. Unlike okay. all the boxes I didn't know if that was it. in that house. Okay. Which never got unpacked. Yeah. Okay, so let's start with the notion that a house can make someone a murderer, mm-hmm. okay? That seems to be the through line in all murder house stories, right? The house made them do it. I say that about Ronald DeFeo in Amityville, and I'm assuming every other murder house ever. That's the interesting part. But is that actually possible? And if it's not the structure itself, are there spirits trapped in the house that caused people harm or orchestrated tragic events? Well, I can't fully answer that second one. I do believe in some form or another of ghosts, but I don't really know if a ghost can cause a murder. But I do know this. Your house can absolutely make you kill people. No ghosts or demons required. And I will prove this with only the use of science. Oh. Yes. So, start with the crime. In the best murder house stories, the event has little to no apparent provocation, right? That's the interesting part. We don't know why it happened. It just did. Much like John List. We didn't really know on the outset why that happened. And there's a lot of John List parallels in this case, actually. Someone just snaps in the middle of the night and boom, no survivors. Or in this case, some survivors, but the whole thing is weird and we're not sure what the plan was. But the fact remains, 
Dr. Harold Perelson woke up at 4 a.m. and chose violence. That we can confirm. The murder-suicide is real. You can check the newspapers and county death records and everything. It is there. So how does a seemingly typical and stable person switch off and just start murdering? Well, usually it happens during a psychotic episode. According to the July 2010 edition of the Schizophrenia Bulletin, nearly 40% of psychotic homicides happen during the perpetrator's first psychotic episode because it's something no one saw coming, not even the person themselves. So yes, a violent psychotic murder can happen without the murder having any history of violence at all. Oh, it's so interesting. It's interesting that this is like the first case we bring that up. I know. I was reading this and I'm like, oh, yeah. (laughs) Do we need to go back and be like, hey. Very pertinent. Yeah. (laughs) So like frequently, if you do see someone, what what this is saying, that had a psychotic episode and committed a murder, you wouldn't know because they never had one before. Mm Mm-hmm. It's also really scary because it means like basically anyone has the potential. (sighs) Well, I know how we'd be dead this week. I know, seriously. (laughs) During a psychotic episode, the person is not themselves. So a typically kind and gentle family-oriented human can turn on a dime and commit horrible acts of violence. Is this common? No, but it is possible. Hmm. And if you're racking your brain for an example, let me do that for you. One specific case comes to mind for me. That is the case of James Gordon Wolcott. On August 4th, 1967, 15-year-old James Gordon Wolcott shot his mother, father, and 17-year-old sister dead in their home with a 22 caliber rifle. Just, again, chose violence mm. out of nowhere. After he finished this act, he walked calmly to the road and flagged down the first passing car to tell them that his parents had been shot. James was quick to confess, too, telling detectives that his family annoyed him. He said his sister had an annoying accent, which wouldn't you all have the same accent, but Mm. whatever. He said his father disagreed with his anti-Vietnam War opinions, and his mother chewed too loudly. I get it. Yeah, me too. He gets a pass on that last one because I also want to murder loud chewers. (laughs) Close your mouth. It's not hard. Just do it. But sometimes it's still loud. It's true. Sometimes it is still loud. Ugh. James was then tried as an adult, but deemed legally not responsible for his actions by reasons of insanity, which we rarely see working in a court of law. Lots of people try it. Very few people do it successfully. But psychiatrists stated that James uh, had schizophrenia and had been sniffing airplane glue at the time of his crimes. And this really is a deceptively named product. It's used for model airplanes. And inhaling it to get high at that time was like a very common thing. Like people talk about sniffing glue. That's what they're talking about. Yeah. But when I hear someone say airplane glue, I think it's like an industrial chemical used for actual airplanes. And I always think like, where are kids getting this? Right. It's not though. It's just craft glue. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I digress. That one was just for me. (laughs) If any of you guys thought that too, let me know. James was then sentenced to time in a psychiatric hospital and was released just seven years later. James then went on to change his name to James St. James. Cute. Yeah, much like um, the Party Monster murders. Yeah. And attended the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where he earned his doctorate in psychology. After college, James got a job as a professor at Millican University, where he teaches psychology to this day. Families of students have expressed concerns about James, but the university stands by him as he is an excellent professor with a stellar record. 
He is also very well-liked by his students and an incredibly well-adjusted individual. The James that killed his entire family is not the same James that walks the campus of Millican University. Did the house make James do this? No, probably not. But he's just here to illustrate the event, not the cause. Did we talk about someone else like that that later went on to be a professor? I've told this story on a What the Friday before. Oh, okay. Okay. So maybe like 20 of you guys have heard it. Okay. <laughs> and it was a while ago. But I really like this story, uh, not just because it's interesting, because it's also a testament to like actual diagnosis and rehabilitation and treatment. Yeah. Like this guy was not, that wasn't him that committed this horrible act. It was an illness that or disorder that needed treatment and he got treatment and is back to himself and is a, a very actively contributing member of society. Right. So it can happen. So he's here just to illustrate what happens, that, that the fact that someone can turn on a dime. Mm -hmm. Now, on to the house. Can a house be responsible for a psychotic episode? Well, the answer might be lurking in your very own basement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are numerous studies that indicate the prolonged inhalation of toxic mold spores by a person with a specific allergic response can cause psychosis. That's what I was going to say. I was like, it's mold. Mold mm -hmm. is killing us yeah. all and making us crazy. Uh, for sure. <laughs> and I mean, there are case studies wherein people exhibited psychosis. Usually it's like a manifests in like an extreme agoraphobia. But psychosis is psychosis and it manifests as it's going to in whoever it's in. You know what I mean? Toxic mold can live undetected in basements, attics, garages, and even on large swaths of, you know, wood behind the walls yeah. in older homes, especially the ones without adequate ventilation, which a lot of them don't really have. Is there an example of someone surrendering to mold psychosis and killing their whole family? No. No, that would for sure have been in the news. But it is technically possible. Did the house in today's story make murderers? Well, we don't know. But being that it is old and it did have poor ventilation, it definitely could have. Oh. Just something to think about. The mold is to blame. Could be. It could be. I don't know that it is, but I don't know that it isn't. Right? Just saying. Okay. All right. Now that I've scared you all into a mold inspection, mm -hmm. let's move on to the next frequently asked question about this case. Is 2475 Glendower Place the inspiration for American Horror Story's first season, Murder House? Mm, well, probably part of it. That season is inspired by an unbelievable amount of real events like the kidnapping and murder of the Lindbergh baby, the Columbine massacre, the Black Dahlia murder, and yes, one could argue that the house itself and its unsellability, because remember, realtors are like dying to unload this house, was inspired by the Glendower house in Los Feliz. Its original owners were a doctor and his wife, as they were in the story, and they did in American Horror Story, end in a murder-suicide. This is not a spoiler, trust me. That is the most sterile version of that part of the story possible. I have ruined nothing. And if you haven't seen that yet, like, get on it. I even seen it. You even seen it? Yeah. Very good. <laughs> and it is run down and spooky, so the likelihood that a kid might yell, you're gonna die in there, is also pretty high. Plus, the Black Dahlia, who appeared on that season of American Horror Story, was also rumored to have been killed in Los Feliz at the famous Soudan House, which would be close enough for her ghost to wander over and visit, I suppose. A side note, when I researched the Black Dahlia murders very early on in this podcast's life, I did talk about the Soudan House briefly, but 
It is only referred to as the Franklin Street House in just about everything I read, which really downplays how insane this house is. Leslie, you should Google it right now. It's S-O-W-D-E-N, Soden or Soden House. And it is was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright's son, Lloyd Wright. And it looks like a kid was nailed to a chair and forced to recreate a combination of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Pan's Labyrinth with Minecraft blocks. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. See, I'm not kidding. That is an accurate description of that building. Oh, my goodness. I, I like this. Yeah, it looks like giant open jaws in the side of a cave. It in does. The front. It looks like it. the front of it is, I don't know, it's like post-apocalyptic. Yeah, almost. it's very like, scary. But Minecraft blocks. Yeah. It's so bizarre. And that house is also in Los Feliz. And that is apparently, if you believe the theory that Dr. George Hotel murdered Elizabeth Short, that's the house in which she was killed. Oh, yeah. Okay. So there's the a lot going on. Is so cool. It's all insane looking. Oh my god. Ooh, from the out- oh, because you know what they do? What the outside? So it has that like it's just concrete. Yeah. On the outside, they use it. They put um photos like they yeah uh-huh. they stream things up there. Ew. Like I don't care for that. It's so cool though. They have like. This looks really cool. It's creepy. It's like a... They have lots of parties there now. That's they what host, it lo- like it celebrity like events and stuff. Yeah, it looks like it's for a party. So yeah. like they have things going Oh yeah, it's definitely a venue. up there. I want to go to something there. Somebody get me invited there. Get us both yeah. invited there. We'll buy new dresses. It'll be great. So fun. Absolutely. Okay. Spooky. So now that we've dealt with the whimsical parts of the story that don't fit anywhere else. Okay. <laughs> let's get to the actual house. I must mention that a lot of the bones of this story story are a matter of public record and can be found easily in various newspaper articles and formal documents. But the more obscure stuff and the hard-to-get-at details are courtesy of an incredibly thorough article by crime journalist Jeff Mache called The Murder House, which was published online for Medium in September of 2015, and the excellent podcast website, and I sincerely hope eventual documentary, The Los Feliz Murder Mansion by Stacey Astenius. Holy Hannah, Stacey is the real deal. She did some of the finest and most thorough investigating I have witnessed in the true crime arena. And she does it all with kindness, self-awareness, and unwavering compassion. So listen to her podcast as soon as you're finished here. Our version is full, and it will not leave you with many questions. But Stacy answers questions you didn't even know you had. She won't tell you about toxic mold, though. Oh, uh, gotcha. That's all me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's start at the top. 2475 Glendower Place was built in 1925 for Mr. and Mrs. Harry Schumacher, a wealthy couple from Washington State. Now, I did get that date wrong a couple paragraphs ago. I said 1921. The house was designed in 1921, but constructed by 1925. So that's where my mistake came from. Sorry about that. So Harry had made a ton of money in the produce business, like millions of dollars in the 20s in produce. That sounds about right. That sounds like such a 1920s Yeah, job. right? <laughs> I made my money in apples. <laughs> exactly. So after he made all his money in apples, Harry decided to retire to the glamorous and temperate Los Angeles, California, specifically the private and idyllic Los Feliz Heights. The Schumachers had hired a respected architect named Harry Werner to design their dream home. 
Harry Werner was famous for designing beautiful Spanish revival homes for Hollywood's elite and also the first Carl's Jr. Oh. Fun. Burgers and fancy people. Nice. Have you ever been to a Carl's Jr.? Nope. Me either. Well, guess we got to go there too. Put it on the list. (laughs) The Schumachers moved into their custom half-acre estate on a hill. It had four bedrooms, three bathrooms, a detached three-car garage, and over 5,000 square feet of house. So it's big. But they didn't get to live there for long. By the end of July 1928, both of the Schumachers were dead. Oh. Yeah. Florence died of acute endocarditis, a bacterial infection of the heart, and acute renal suppression, which, as we learned last week, is kidney failure. Mm -hmm. And we also learned that it is not fun. No. No. So she died on July 1st, 1928, at just 41 years old. Mm. And then... 41 years young. Indeed. Then, 27 days later, Harry died of pneumonia. Oh. Good mold. Jeez. Both Harry and Florence died in their home, which was relatively common at the time. However, their age and illnesses are still pretty tragic and uncommon, even for the time. And like I said, they could have been caused by mold, just saying. Anyway, I'm the only one saying that, so don't take it as gospel. But still, well, I have to wonder. This house was just built, right? Yeah, it's been there for a couple years, but if you don't have ventilation, mold can appear well, in like a true. week. That's true. One rainstorm, there we go. I'm the only one who's saying this. Again, you guys, I did not research this. Yeah. It's just my pet theory. <laughs> um, after Harry and Florence died, Harry's brother, Orlando, inherited the house as executor of his estate. So Orlando moved his family in less than a month later, but he didn't really like this house. He only took up residence in it so he could sell it. You have to, like, prove that you lived there or something, and that's why he lived there. Um, But apparently, the house and cleaning it had caused Orlando's son to fall seriously ill. Oh. Cough, cough. This is real, though. Something in the air in that house made Orlando's son so sick that they had to move him out just nine months later. So they were like, we can't stay here. We have to go. He's very sick. I think he's just sick of cleaning. Oh, oh. (laughs) I see what you did there. They also said they hated that there was 51 stairs you had to climb to get Mm -hmm. to the front door, which like, yeah, that's a lot. I feel that, but like, I need that. I know. That's what I need. I'd be in such good shape if I had to climb all those stairs. Our butts would look so good. So good. Oh, maybe we just need more stairs. I know. All right, I'm just going to put a bunch in my front yard. Okay. They'll just go up and down and up and down. You you have to make it all the way up, and then you could just slide down into your front door. <laughs> they go up to, like, my attic window instead. Yeah. You just cr- climb in. I'll yeah. just put a door up there. It'll be fine. Oh, solved. Problem solved. Done. We're going to be in great shape. After Orlando, his wife and kids moved out of the house, it became a rental for a little while because Orlando didn't exactly have dreams of becoming a wealthy landlord, but after listing the house unsuccessfully with 50, different realtors Jeez. couldn't sell it. You never can sell this house. It will not sell. That's part of the curse. Well, after all of that, Orlando saw a little other choice unless he really wanted to take a monetary dive on the upkeep of the place. And his son clearly wasn't cleaning it anymore. So off to the renters we go. From 1929 to 1930, the house was rented by German film producer Fred Zelnick. Then in 1930, it went to film critic Welford Beaton, 
who lived there with his wife Louise and son Donald. And if you recall, I mentioned earlier that there had been three deaths in the Glendower house before the Perelsons moved in. Donald was the third. Oh. Yeah. By May 3rd, 1931, 21-year-old Donald had succumbed to an infection he had been battling for the better part of four years. The infection began in a blister Donald got while playing tennis, which we can assume was probably on his hand or foot. And this seems weird now. It's a pretty unusual way to die. But at the time, this was frightfully common. Specifically this, actually. In fact, just six years earlier in 1925, President Calvin Coolidge's 16-year-old son also died from an infection that went septic derived from a blister on his foot that he got from, you guessed it, playing tennis. Wow. Yeah, weird. Don't play tennis in the mid-1920s. You'll die. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you do get a lot of blisters. When I was an athletic trainer, I was like always putting, we called it like second skin. Yeah, yeah. On there. Mm-hmm. All the time. Well, second skin doesn't come along for a while. Yeah. But while antibiotics may have been discovered in 1928, they were not widely available until at the very earliest, the mid-1930s which is after both Calvin Coolidge Jr. and Donald Beaton unfortunately passed away. So once you have this infection, you can't just put Neosporin on it or take an antibiotic and get rid of it. You just have to hope it goes away. Right. And if it goes into your blood and you get septic, that's it for you. They could have put some tea tree on it. I don't think they did. Mm -hmm. Rough. Should have asked you. I guess so. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, and where did Donald die? In his home, of course. As I mentioned before, dying in a hospital is not very common back then. People tended to die in their homes. They were treated in their homes as well. Doctors made house calls. And so, you know, two and two go together. And I know for a fact that Donald and the Schumachers were all seen by doctors in the Glendower house, um, and then they passed away. Mm -hmm. So even if their ailments were bizarre and grave, you'd still stay in your house. Oh, that's kind of comfy. Doctor just comes to you. I know, but like also that house is like awesome. It is awesome and maybe full of toxic mold. Yeah. But like if you can push that aside. Yeah. If you can just like put that in the back of your mind because maybe I'm just saying that, then you're fine. It actively keeps you in shape. It does actively keep you in shape and then kills you. (laughs) Oh my God. At least your ass looks good. Yeah. In 1931, Welford Beaton declared bankruptcy and moved out of the Glendower house. It was then rented for a time to British actor George Arliss before it was finally sold on June 1st, 1932 to John Stauffer and his family who lived in the house for 23 years without incident. Okay. Yeah, so some people liked it. Then uh, the 23 years pass and they decide to donate the house to Whittier College and move on. So these are like pretty rich people. Mm. John went to Whittier. So when they left the area, he was like, mm, I'm going to give you this beautiful house. And they were like, thank you. Love it. The college then left the house vacant for a little while before finally selling it to Dr. Harold Perelson in 1956. So the house would have been sold to Whittier in 1954. And then two years later, Dr. Perelson bought it. So in between then, there are another couple years of vacancy. The house just sits for large periods of time. Right. And because it is furnished very specifically, I'm led to believe by the fact that it is also frequently left with furniture in it, that if you buy furniture for this house, you can't use it in another house. Mm -hmm. You're like, well, I might as well just leave you with this house because you're not going to go anywhere else. Also, people with 
generally that much money yeah. are usually like, oh, new house, new me. I don't need to <laughs> ship it. Yeah. And you just keep it. Thanks. Yeah. So that's three debts within the span of four years and a cooling off period, which sounds like a serial killer to me, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we haven't even reached the apex of this story, and one could already argue that the house is cursed. Mm-hmm. But that's nothing new for Los Feliz. No, one little secret that we have managed to keep from you all until this point is that it wasn't just the house on Glendower Place that was supposedly cursed. It was also the town itself. Now, since I don't know a whole lot about this, I will defer to our resident expert on posh towns and ancient curses. So, Leslie, do you happen to know anything about the Los Feliz curse? So weird. I do. <sighs> I had a feeling you would. Yeah. Okay. So, the Los Feliz curse, the happy curse. <laughs> yeah. It's supposed to, how the way it's supposed to be pronounced. So this curse dates back to 1863 and covers the land of Griffith Park in Los Angeles, which is 4,210 acres and is the second largest park in California and one of the largest parks in the nation. Wow. Yeah, I heard so, a very rich lady say it was the most beautiful park in the world. So It is really pretty. This is also where you see like the Hollywood sign, oh, the fun. zoo, the observatory, theater. So I want to go there too. Yeah. So near the end of the 1700s, this land originally belonged to the Felices and was called Rancho Los Feliz. By 1863, property was in the name of the of Don Antonio Feliz, who resided on the land with his sister Soledad and his 17-year-old blind niece, Doña Petronia. Soledad, doesn't that mean truth? Maybe. And that's because it sounded like... Maybe I'm wrong. I only have high school Spanish. This year, Don Antonio, Don, <laughs> this year, well, maybe, yeah, Don, Donia, Don, Don. I want to do it like Italian. <laughs> Don Antonio. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> had gotten very ill with smallpox and things were not looking real good for him. Oh, I was wrong. Soldad means um, solitude or being alone. Oh, okay. So, sad. Yeah, Yeah. and a little sad. All right, so while Don Antonio Felice was wasting away on his deathbed, Mm -hmm. Don Antonio Coronel gave Felice a visit, but also brought along his lawyer. That was nice of him, just bringing a friend along. Listen, my (laughs) lawyer would love to see you almost dead. Yeah. (laughs) Perfect, bring him over. So Don Inocante was the lawyer, and these two gentlemen had drawn up a will that they presented to Felice for his approval. Okay. Also very nice of yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did a favor. They were like, you had a will, but we just kind of like helped. We made you a better will. We made you a, a much better You're will. You're gonna love it. So Felice, being very sick and very weak and very much not able to give any form of consent, was luckily still able to approve this will. Oh, well, how convenient for those other people. I know. So the story claims that a stick was attached to the back of Felice to help him nod his head in agreement. Good for them to help. 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 That's nice. Mm -hmm. The new will was witnessed by several ranch workers who resided a short distance from the main house, and the changes were approved by a judge. Great. The judge was like, this looks like it's on the up and up. Yep. All right. (laughs) Nod your head, friend. Stick, stick, stick. (laughs) Whether that part about attaching a stick to Felice's back was true or not, the land and lion's share of the wealth went to Don Antonio Coronel, 
While only a few items went to Felice's sister, a few of the horses were given to his godson, and nothing was left for the poor blind niece, Dona Patronia. I'm sad for her, but I'm laughing because I imagine this like weekend at Bernie. I know. A hundred percent. I'm glad you saw that because that's all I was thinking. He just like had sunglasses on. Yeah, exactly. You're yeah. just dragging him around. He's partying. Yeah. And it's just like rancher outfit. And that's the origin of that film, too. Yeah, there you go. And so this really pissed off Petronia. Yeah, right? it would. So much so that she cursed the land, <gasps> Don Coronel, <gasps> and Don in, in Ocante. Yeah, well, the lawyer. Did it. And even the judge that upheld the will's legality. She was like, fuck <laughs> you. <laughs> you bought Weekend at Bernie's? Yeah, I know. You thought that was right? Mm-mm, oh, you went on the no. curse, too. Bye. So according to legend, she swore, The substance of the Feliz family shall be your curse. The wrath of heaven and the vengeance of hell shall fall upon this place. Oh boy, she went for it. Yeah. I love it. Commit. And once the curse was spoken, Petronia dropped dead. Oh shit. That is, God, that is very dramatic and effective. Shortly after, Coronel ceded the property to his lawyer who was shot and killed while celebrating the sale of the land's water rights. <laughs> the judge met an untimely death himself. Oh, no. Don Coronel's family supposedly died of, like, or slowly died of misfortune and disease. Oh, through, like, boy. The family. And then the land was eventually passed to Leon the Lucky Baldwin. Pretty lucky. Or was it? Sounds like it would be Alec Baldwin. Yeah, it definitely was Alec Baldwin. <laughs> he got it. Yeah whose lucky streak immediately ended when he started a ranch and dairy farm on the property. The cattle and the land died. Fires destroyed grain, grasshoppers devoured crops, and nothing basically went right. After he went bankrupt and was forced to sell the land to pay for the mortgage, Baldwin was supposedly gunned down by an outlaw. See, that's what happens when you actually make Alec Baldwin a farmer and you don't let him wear a tuxedo. Absolutely. There you go. You live on a farm. Mm-hmm. What am I, a farmer? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> the land ended up with Thomas Bell, a financier from San Francisco. That's how it's written. Financier? Financier. Financer? Financier. Financier? Yeah. <laughs> he didn't hold the land long, so it doesn't matter. Though, uh, before selling it to Griffith J. Griffith, in 1882. Wow. Uh, this Who guy, did that to him? Right. So this guy also gave himself the name um, Colonel Griffith, J. Griffith, mm-hmm. but he had like held no rank at all. He just like went by this name. That's like if you named yeah. your child Doctor. Yeah. <laughs> like their first name was Doctor. Yeah. <laughs> so Bell apparently lived into his 80s and then fell off from his mansion's banister or was pushed by his mistress. <gasps> so the curse never left him oh, even after he sold. So anyway, so now the land is owned by Griffith, who, and remember, it's called Griffith Park. He's like, right? I'm going to make a park. Yeah. <laughs> I am Griffith, Griffith, Griffith. Yeah. <laughs> we'll call it Griffith Park. Just the thought I had. <laughs> I only know like five words. That's one of them. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So he owns the land now, and he allowed a man named Frank Burkett to start an ostrich farm on the property to lure residents to the area and Griffith's <laughs> other surrounding properties. Just makes me think of Letterkenny. <laughs> oh, no, allegedly. Yeah. Okay. By 1884, the curse popped up again as a huge storm racked the land. 
a lightning storm brought down huge strands of trees and sent a wall of water cascading through the canyons, ruining much of the ranch. This is like biblical. I know. So during the storm, the ranch hands were startled when they saw the ghost of Don Antonio Feliz riding the waves down the hillside, cheering his successor's demise. (laughs) Weekend of Bernie's surfing in. I know. But also, can you imagine these ranch hands like coming to tell Griffith this? Like, hey, Mr. Griffith, (laughs) this guy really wants you dead. You should look at this. Yeah. Because we can't believe it. Yeah, so Don Antonio uh, Felice continued to haunt the land after the storm, causing the ostriches to get all riled up at night. Oh, no. Allegedly. I wish they were still there. <laughs> well, there might be ghosts of them running around. Ghost, os- ghost, I can't even talk. Yeah. Ghost ostriches? That's yeah. hard to mm-hmm. say. So uh, this scared Griffith so much, as it would us. <laughs> 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 I just imagine him seeing the ghost ostriches and being like, Ugh. Yeah. Well, at this point, they're still there, alive and well. And they're mean, so. Yeah. Um, this scared him so much that he refused to visit the land except at midday. With yeah. ghosts appearing and ostriches stampeding, Griffith eventually foreclosed on the ostrich farm, which was failing anyways, oh, causing God. Burkett to vow vengeance. And Burkett ended up attempting to gun down Griffith with his shotgun. Burkett apparently used a birdshot instead of buckshot, which was the only reason Griffith survived. Whoa. But Burkett thought that he had succeeded in killing Griffith. Remember, you got to, like, you got to make sure your work is done. Yeah. So he thought he killed him already, and then he committed suicide with a revolver to his head. Oh, no. Murder-suicide. Yeah. A plenty. I know. Was it the curse? Uh, Maybe. After all of this, Griffith had enough. And in 1896, he donated the majority, not all of it, of the land to Los Angeles, to Los Angeles, Angeles. (laughs) to Los Angeles as a Christmas present, hoping his good (laughs) deed, hoping his good deed would rid him of the curse. Unfortunately, the curse followed him again, probably because he didn't give up all of the land. You can't just shake a curse. You can't be like, I tricked you. Yeah. So Griffith, who was a devout, this is the crazy story. Oh, no. He was a devout Protestant, and he started to worry that his Catholic wife, Christina Mesmer, and the Pope were conspiring to poison him and steal all of his money. Mesmer like like the Mesmerists? Maybe. Okay. Mm-hmm. At dinner, Griffith would often switch his plate with hers when she wasn't looking to ensure that he wasn't being poisoned. Okay. Th- this man is also going wild. Yeah. But the stress of it all got to be too much, and he shot his wife while they stayed at the Arcadia Hotel in Santa Monica. That's so similar. Oh, no. Yeah. Whoa, that is wild. But boy, was she a warrior. She survived the shot by throwing herself from the window, landed on an awning, and crawled to safety through yet another window. Jesus. She was disfigured and blind in one eye afterwards. Wow. And I find it interesting that she was blind in one eye because, remember, um, Doña <gasps> Petronia was also blind. Oh, my God. Yeah. There is a curse. So Griffith was arrested and served only two years for attempted murder, but his reputation was never the same. After he was released from prison, the city ignored his attempts to continue building up Griffith Park, wanting nothing officially to do with him. Griffith did, however, set up a trust fund to have his improvements, the observatory and Greek theater, built and cared for after he passed away. So that was, like, nice. Yeah, that was nice. He passed away in 1919 and is laid to rest at Hollywood Forever Cemetery. So, like, 
again, he kind of had like a psychotic break there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's wow. Now the park was in the hands of the city of Los Angeles. And after Griffith's death, the curse seemed to be gone. But then in 1933, after 29 civilian conservation corps workers died in a wildfire, locals blamed Los Feliz's curse, allowing the legend to uh, live on. But moving forward just a little bit, because there was a lot kind of in between too, but getting to more modern days with this curse. Okay. In 1976, a young couple were crushed by a falling tree while making love on a picnic table. Okay. Don't do that. Don't. Yeah. Get your life together. There are other places. You're going to get crushed by a tree. In 2012, two women walking their dog along one of the park's hiking trails below the Hollywood sign discovered a severed head wrapped in a plastic bag. No. A day later, investigators found more body parts spread out around the scene. A fingerprint test from one of the hands would identify the remains as belonging to 66-year-old Hervey Medellin. A former, and I definitely butchered that word, but we're just going to go with it. A former Mexicana Airlines employee. It was rumored that he was the victim of a Canadian cannibal killer (gasps) who was also accused of dismembering and eating a Chinese graduate student. Oh, now I got to look that up. I know. There's so much. Canadian cannibal killer. I I got it. I know. Shit. Who is that? Right. But three years later, the police convicted the real killer who was Hevery's boyfriend, Gabrielle Campos Martinez, who is now serving a sentence of 25 years to life. That name I know. One of the damning pieces of evidence for Gabrielle was when investigators found his search history. Apparently, the day after Hevery was last seen, Gabrielle did an internet search on how to butcher a human carcass for human consumption. Okay. Yeah. Well, we've seen what happens when people can do that. Uh Uh-huh. In 2015, a body of a 24-year-old who had been convicted of meeting minors for sex was found. He apparently committed suicide. Oh. And then in addition to all of those kind of stories, the ghost of Don Antonio Felice has been seen riding the park trails and laughing crazily on top of large rocks overlooking the park, sometimes with his niece, Donna Petronia, who is also usually wearing a white dress. One location that... Petronia is said to haunt is the Crystal Springs Ranger Headquarters, also called the Paco Feliz Adobe. She appears as a ghostly senorita in a white dress watching from the adobe's windows on dark and rainy nights. And of course, she never lived in this adobe, but it is the only remaining structure from that time period and probably served as the house for servants or ranch hands. And this would be the same ranch hands who witnessed her practically dead uncle Agree to the will changes. Oh no, it's the same one. It would be the. It feels yeah. like more time passed. That's wild. Here is a quote taken from the LA Times in 2012 from Griffith Park's Chief Ranger Albert Torres regarding the rumor of the curse and ghosts. Ooh. Frankly, I am not afraid of any make believe demons as much as I am of some of the living and breathing human monsters who come here. If you knew even a quarter of the stuff we find within the park's perimeter, you'd never set foot in here again. Oh, Jesus. Animal sacrifices, satanic cult, murders, prostitution. With stuff like that happening on a regular basis, it makes a pair of 30-year-old ghosts look like good times. So this quote is like wild because also it's like a hundred-year-old ghosts at this point. Yeah. (laughs) 
But yeah, so, and also all of that still sounds like the land is cursed. That's a lot of shit happening. Yeah, that's a very clear and obvious curse that isn't going anywhere. Yeah, this is horrifying. Oh, no. Um, So one of the things that I did research, most of that story, so the legend of the curse is they can't prove that Petronia actually curse. There's like no actual proof of she that. She didn't like say those awesome macabre things and then die. Right. Like, because there's just witnesses that have said that, but nobody's really there to really prove that it happened. They also think maybe somebody might have made it up to get like, because they didn't like Griffith. I don't I, know. I choose to believe it. <laughs> yeah, me too. Because, boy, is um, that a good story. But also, uh, she was, um, she didn't die suddenly like that. So she would have been like in her 20s when she spoke the curse. Mm-hmm. And uh, she lived like 30 or so years after her uncle died. Oh, okay. But that all that stuff was true. Like the, she she didn't get anything from the will. Okay. I think her son was the nephew that got the horses. So there was like a little bit of stuff. But, but she like, didn't just yell and fall over. Well, she might have. Not dead. Just like, yeah, just like fell over for a minute. Exactly. She, she might have cursed the land. Hey, man, I'm going to choose to believe she did. Yeah. Because like if she did, then like, wow, you are powerful. It yeah. worked. Mm hmm. Wow, that was a great story. <laughs> I know, so much. There's I know, so but it's much. so good. And yeah. it lines up with so many other things. That's so yeah. wild. Maybe it wasn't mold. Maybe it was a curse. Maybe it was cursed mold. We don't know. Right. Oh, boy. Whew, that is a good aging curse. And one that hasn't gone anywhere with time. There are lots of other horrible deaths that have occurred within Los Feliz, the Manson family murders being one of them. Oh, wow. Yeah, but we're not here for the Manson family today. That's a lot. So let's get back to Dr. Perelson. Who was he and why had he done such a horrible thing? Furthermore, how much of that horrible thing was true and how much was bent by what I am sure was a great many years of exaggeration? Let's find out. Harold Nathan Perelson was born in 1909 and raised in Manhattan by Polish and Russian parents. It should be mentioned that Dr. Perelson and his family were and are Jewish and therefore did not celebrate Christmas. So, no Christmas tree for them. Are there plenty of Jewish families who have Christmas trees? Sure, and good for them. Have all the holidays. No one's stopping you. Christmas is so rarely centered around Jesus at this point that I don't think you even really need to believe in him to enjoy a Hallmark movie and some twinkle lights. And Santa has no religious affiliation anymore either. And if you wish that he did, you should go back and listen to our episode on the origins of Santa Claus. Maybe you can celebrate this year with a ham baby. Love it. That'll be festive. Yes. But I digress. The likelihood that the Perelsons were the owners of the infamous Christmas tree on Glendower Place is pretty slim. So let's just leave it at that. Which means that little artifact is going to have to stay a mystery for just a little while longer. Not forever. Just a little while. Harold Perelson graduated from City College in New York in 1931 with a bachelor's degree in science. He went on to get his MD from Long Island College in 1935 with a speciality in cardiology. Nice. I know it's specialty, but I like speciality better. Mm-hmm. But even with an excellent education, such as Harold's, a job was still hard to come by in Manhattan, so Harold relocated to Southern California, where he found a job rather quickly as a physician's assistant. Harold worked hard and spent his spare time researching and writing papers. He was lucky enough to have several of them published, which eventually led him to a position as a cardiology professor at the University of Southern California of Medicine. By 1937, Harold was 28 years old, living in Los Angeles, and making pretty decent money. 
when he met and married 20-year-old Lillian Silver, who was also a New York import. I don't love that she's 20, but it's 1937, so we're going to let that one slide. Okay. At this point in time, Harold's specialty was injections, which I hate because I hate them all. (laughs) But he was good at them. Good enough for patients to remember and comment, like, yeah, he was good. It didn't hurt when he gave them. Okay. And, like, you know, nothing ever got messed up or infected or anything. And we're eh, we're post-antibiotics at this point, but just. So, you know, that was a feat. On December 30th, 1938, Harold filed a patent for something he thought might revolutionize the injection process in general. It was an attachment for a hypodermic syringe that would inject drugs directly from a sealed glass capsule, thereby reducing the danger of contamination and spillage. And this is pretty damn smart and really quite similar to the system we have in place today. It's little glass bottles with a top you can just stab the needle into and suck it out. So it's pretty damn similar. Yeah. The medicine goes right from bottle to syringe, no in-betweens. So Dr. Perelson must have been on to something. He spent the next decade developing it. Meanwhile, Harold and his wife had their first daughter, Judy, spelled J-U-D-Y-E, everywhere except on the light switch plate, in 1941, followed by their son, Joel, in 1946, and finally their youngest daughter, Debbie, in 1948. Deborah, if you want to be formal. Then in 1949, Harold partnered with a man named Edward Shustak. Harold would give Edward his plans, and the deal was that Edward would make them a reality. So Harold is the brains and Edward is the bronze. Like, yeah. The pair would then sell the syringes to every doctor and hospital in the country, split the profits, and probably be set for life. Hmm. Works out for both of them pretty well. Harold and Lillian Perelson invested $24,000. $496 in 1949 into this project. Wow. That is an astronomical sum of money. Now, this device ought to have helped tons of people and made millions, but alas, it wasn't to be. Edward Shustak was a greedy man who tried to change his name after development um, and pass off the syringe as his and his alone. Ooh. Asshole. But Harold caught on and took him to court. Furious at this betrayal, he tried to sue Edward Shustak for $100,000. And in 1949, that's like saying, I sue you for one quadrillion dollars. Yeah, Jesus. But after a two-year legal battle, the court awarded Harold Perelson with just $23,956. By this time, it was 1954. And the Perelsons would take a couple years to recoup their losses and bury the dream of Harold's invention before assessing their kingdom and realized their time had come for a castle. And there's no word on if this syringe ever really was developed and came to light. You can't, I mean, I feel like it would have been absorbed into different phases of modern syringes and, right. and medicine. So there's really no way we would know. So it could have been. I mean, there is the chance that Harold Perelson significantly contributed to that. Interesting. Which was not a thing that would have been enough for him, considering he asked for, like, an insane sum of money. Okay, so they decide they need a house, big, beautiful house. Enter 2475 Glendower Place. Now, I say that number a lot, and I hope I don't get it wrong, but sometimes I type it wrong. So if I do, I'm sorry. When Harold found this house in 1956, it was described in the listing as, quote, 
Delightful 12-room home with terraced lawns, artistic gardens, and magnificent view. A spacious tiled entrance hall and stairway led to a charming living room, a glass conservatory, dining room, den, breakfast room, and kitchen. Upstairs, the second floor had four master bedrooms and three baths, while the third floor boasted a bar and ballroom. And there were staff quarters. Now, this, that little quote passage was, um, t- I took that from Jeff Mace's article. I don't know how much of it was the listing and how much of it is Jeff kind of expanding on it. Okay. So credit where credit is due. Whoever right. wrote that, that's who described it. It was just like a little footnote. May contain mold. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, they had staff quarters, you know, to accommodate the help. Not that the Perelsons had any help unless you count their 14-year-old neighbor, Sherry, who sometimes babysat their two younger children. But still, should they should they get like some butlers or something? There's a place to put them. And Sherry's going to come back later, so don't worry. I haven't mentioned her for nothing. Lillian Perelson loved her new lavish home. She was like, nice, big, beautiful house. And I mean, I would have too. Who wouldn't? You know who wouldn't? Judy wouldn't. She hated it. Oh, Judy. Yeah, she thought the house felt like a mausoleum. Ooh, oh, man. On the nose. How right she turned out to be. The Perelsons carried on with the lifestyle they were accustomed to once living at Glendower Place, which was that of a rich person. Lillian loved to buy furniture for the house. I mean, it's a lot of house, so yeah. Right. And Judy loved fashion. Friends remember Judy as having just boxes upon boxes of shoes. So she was truly living the dream. Like shoe stack. Oh, no. Get out of here, shoe stack. (laughs) And your identity theft in ways. Then in 1957, another bump in the road came along for the Perelsons. Judy was driving her two younger siblings somewhere in her father's Oldsmobile when she collided with another car. According to the car's driver, 16-year-old Judy ran a stop sign. But according to Judy and her father, it was in fact the other driver who ran a stop sign. But it was not a small crash, and all three of the Perelson children were injured. Judy hurt her hand and knee, sustained a concussion, and entered the emergency department in a state of severe shock. Hmm. Joel also had severe shock and a head injury, and Debbie's cheek had a large gash in the side of it. Yeah, so they got hurt. This was like a crash crash. No word on what happened to the other person, but there must have been some kind of evidence on one of the cars because the Perelsons took the whole thing to court and they won. Harold asked for $20,000 in damages for each daughter and $10,000 for his son. Not super sure why Joel was worth so much less when his injuries probably needed more attention than Debbie's. I was going to say, wasn't his worst? It would have been. He had a head injury, it said, and he was also in shock. Debbie had the cut in her cheek, but that was it. So unless her cheek was cut off, I I think his is probably worse. But that's neither here nor there. I guess they just had favorites. (laughs) Maybe he was just like, there's no way I could find her a suitor now. Look at her face. Oh, no, maybe. (laughs) Or maybe he was, maybe this head injury that Joel had was like a bump on the head. Right, right. It doesn't say he had a concussion or any kind of like what medical interventions were necessary, just that he has a head injury. So it could be anything, I suppose. Uh, the court, however, awarded Harold enough money to cover the medical bills, okay. which was nowhere near $50,000. Right. And that's all. Harold had, it appeared, gotten a little greedy himself. Why would a wealthy doctor need all that extra cash? Now, remember, he did mm-hmm. ask for that sum of money specifically for damages to his children, not his car. Because at first I was like, oh, well, they would also have to replace the car. But also back then cars cost like 500 bucks. So it wouldn't have been that much money. Okay. 
I was trying to like make sense of this astronomical figure in my head and there just isn't any doing it. You can't. Mm -hmm. But why would a wealthy doctor need all that extra cash? Why would he be trying to con a ton of money out of a car accident or a court system? Well, honestly, it doesn't seem like everything was the sunshine and roses that it appeared to be in the Perelson house. In 1959, Judy wrote a letter to one of her aunts in which she included the following passage, quote, My family are on the merry-go-round again. Same problems, same worries, only tenfold. My parents, so to speak, are in a bind financially. Hmm. Yeah. How old was Judy? Uh, 1959. So she's like, when was she born? 41. So she's like 18 or 19. She's an adult. Okay. Around this time, neighbors recall that Harold had to be hospitalized several times for what they told were cardiac incidents. When he returned home from these hospitalizations, everyone was instructed to speak softly around him so as not to startle him or stress him out. So he had had a heart issue. So don't be chill around Harold. Right. We don't want to kill him. He also, around this time, took a liking to dark, epic poetry, you know, like Dante's Divine Comedy. Ah. Yep. And he was spending less and less time at his practice and more and more time at home. Okay. Remember, he, he did have a private practice. He was doing pretty well. And he was an avid researcher before this. He wrote all those papers and was inventing things. He really was invested in the healing art of medicine. And now it doesn't seem like he is so much. Something was going on with Harold. Sadly, though, no one would understand the gravity of this change until too late, when he apparently murdered his wife and then chugged a glass of acid. I don't know about you, but that also seems like it just cannot be right to me. Yeah. So for the sake of argument, and because, spoiler alert, that part is totally made up, a journalist added it sometime after 2009 to a version, his version of the story. So Which part? The acid. Oh, the acid really? drinking. Yeah, that's not, it, that didn't actually happen. He does, he does take his own life, but he okay. didn't drink acid. Somebody just thought it made better newspaper print than what actually happened. So, for the sake of argument, we will assume that this acid he drinks was supposed to be a household chemical that one could pour into a glass because he drinks it in yeah. a glass, right? So, for the sake of this, we're going to assume it was hydrochloric acid or even simple bleach. Mm -hmm. Drinking bleach isn't good for you. Just ask the people who thought it cured autism, but that's another story for another day. Oof. Yep. But drinking hydrochloric acid is also bad for you. And it's not just bad for you. It's very, very difficult to do. Yeah, I was going to say that it's not, you can't just like No, you can't just back. take a sip. This is an extremely cor corrosive substance. The one, in fact, that Joel Guy used to dissolve his parents in tubs, if you guys can remember that one. I sure do. Yeah. And so voluntarily consuming it, especially chugging it out of a glass, which is how it is written in several sources, would be next to impossible. You'd be coughing. The fumes alone would cause damage to your immediate damage to your lungs. You would be blistering and bleeding the whole time. It would be violent and awful. And reports say Harold simply went into the bathroom, drank the stuff, stumbled into Judy's room, and died. So, no, that is not what happened. Okay. Also, the coroner would disagree pretty adamantly as well. Mm -hmm. According to Deputy Coroner Elton T. Knowles, Dr. Perelson died of an overdose of a cocktail of prescription drugs, and they were Nembutal, a drug which is widely known to be used in suicides. 
That's how Marilyn Monroe took her own life. And it is also the medication that is widely used in physician-assisted suicides, wherever that is legal. So this is a very easy sleepy death. Okay. In Dr. Perelson's system were also something called mepromabate, which is a tranquilizer, and codeine, a painkiller, and then some other nameless white barbiturates. So there were over 30 pills in his stomach at the time of his autopsy, as well as the casings to Nembutal capsules in the bathroom sink, which he would have opened and then consumed the powder to hasten their effects. Mm. But this all happened after his acts of extreme violence to others, I suppose you could say. So let's see what really happened on that night first. Combining the coroner's report and police interviews with neighbors who were directly involved and Judy, we can put together a pretty accurate recreation of that night. And it goes like this. We know that December 6, 1959 was a chilly evening up in the hills. We know that around 6 o'clock, Lillian had green beans for dinner. Just green beans. Not sure about the children because there would be no reason to look in their stomachs, but Lillian was all green beans. All right. Yeah. Later, she got dressed for bed in a nightdress, so she had her normal going-to-bed routine and went to sleep in one of the two twin beds in the master bedroom. So this was back in We Sleep in Twin Beds days. We know that Harold was reading Dante's Divine Comedy before he went to sleep and that he left the book open to canto number one, specifically the phrase, Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. And I read the whole, like, uh, not the whole poem, but a larger passage so that you can kind of see what he was trying to communicate in the opening. So if you want to go back and listen to it later, you can hear much more of the poem. But it is all rather chilling. It's all about uh, dying and what occurs after death. Obviously, it's Dante's Divine Comedy. We're, right. That's what we're exploring in this. But it is pretty pertinent just to Harold himself. Now, the children had gone to bed without incident. All three of them just, good night, went to bed. And their babysitting neighbor, Sherry, actually had a friend that night over. Her friend's name is Shelly, and they were having a slumber party, so they stayed up late. Hmm. At 4.30 a.m., Harold rose from his bed with a ball-peen hammer in his hand. He struck Lillian so hard in the back of the head with it that it left an open, inch-wide gash in the back of her skull. An inch doesn't seem big, but when you're talking about, like, a hole in your head, it is big. Yeah. This happened so fast that Lillian had neither the time to wake up or to scream because mm. she was sleeping. So no one would have heard a thing. People are like, well, didn't they hear her, him kill Lillian? No, you wouldn't have. She was asleep. Also, head wounds, as most of us know, bleed pretty heavily. So the scene was quickly a huge mess. Later, the coroner would discover that Lillian had died when her lungs filled with blood, effectively drowning her. Oh, wow. Turning even the whites of her eyes red. Then Harold calmly walked through the Jack and Jill bathroom they shared with Judy. So basically, there is a door in Harold and Lillian's bedroom that goes into a bathroom. And then the, on the other side of the bathroom is another door, and that leads into Judy's room. So they would both have access. It's like like a, almost a double master suite. They both right. have access to this bathroom, which I would hate. Somebody could just walk in the bathroom if you forgot to like walk over and lock the other door. Yeah. Uh, well, I grew up in houses like Oh, did that. you? Well, I like I didn't live in one, yeah. but I had friends that had those. and oh, I would constantly be pee shy because I was afraid someone was going to walk in. Well, you would just lock, you can lock the door while you're in there. Yeah. So usually 
everyone would, would just forget. get mad if you didn't unlock yeah. it. Yeah. It just seems inconvenient. But anyway, that's what they had. So he walks through the bathroom and into Judy's bedroom where he sees her sleeping in her bed. Harold approached her covered in blood with the hammer in hand, but he was not as quick or accurate with Judy as he had been with Lillian. Her head only caught what coroners call a, quote, glancing blow, which would be an indirect hit, enough to hurt, enough to bleed, and enough to wake her up, but not enough to kill her. Judy, then, horrified, seeing her blood-covered father with a hammer in his hand looming over her, began to scream. She screamed so loud and primally, in fact, that it alerted neighbors who thought it was an animal. Mm. Followed by shrieks of, stop killing me, which were clearly not an animal. Yeah. But the neighbors were still figuring things out at this point. They had just woken up. Yeah, it's like, what did you say? It was like 4 a.m.? At this point, it was closer to 5. So, yeah, he started with Lillian at 4.30 a.m. So then on the 7th of December at this point. But Harold responded to her screams with, lay still, keep quiet. Uh, But no, thank you. Judy was not about to lay still and keep quiet while she just got killed. She ran from her room and into the master bedroom where she found her mother, head caved in in a pool of blood. With that, Judy made a break for the front door. Well, what about her siblings, you're probably thinking. Well, Judy's traumatized thought pattern was actually the right one in this situation. She went to get help, knowing that that is how they would all stand the best chance of living at that point. And Mm -hmm. she was right. What is she going to do? Walk into her father, who she cannot overpower, and so then he ends up killing all of them? Mm-hmm. No. So leaving blood smears on everything she touched, Judy, remember she has an actively bleeding head wound, ran first to the house of her babysitter neighbor, Sherry, and her friend, Shelly. So they're at that first house. Oh, okay. <laughs> who heard knocking and banging on the front door and the windows. So they look out the small window on the door to see a fucking horror show. Yeah. There is blood everywhere. Like, everything is smeared with blood. They see this figure screaming, also covered in blood, and they don't recognize Judy because the head wound has bled all over her face. And also, they're kind of probably terrified and frozen still. I don't know if you'd see that and go, it's my friend, let him in. You'd probably be like, holy shit, don't let him in. You don't know what happened. She could have just killed somebody. All you can see is that she's covered in blood. So let's not be so quick to condemn these poor girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, as I mentioned, they did not open the door. God, but also imagine being Judy for just a second. You go through all of that. You get out. You make it to your friend's door, and they will not let you in. Yeah, I know. Fuck. And this is a friend. Like, she'd been to this house several times. She babysits for her younger brother and sister. She knows these people. Ugh. So not willing to give up, Judy. She's like, they already didn't invite me to the sleepover, and now they won't let me in? She is like four years older than them. So she probably wouldn't have been having a sleepover. But still, they wouldn't let her in. And that's pretty shitty. (laughs) But Judy then went to the next neighbor's house. And that was uh, the house of a man named Marshall Ross, who did let her in. Oh, good. And was pretty concerned. Yeah. Oh, yeah? (laughs) Um, yeah. (laughs) Meanwhile, back at the murder house, terrified little Joel and Debbie have tiptoed out of their bedrooms to find their father wandering glazed over throughout the halls with his hands covered in blood, his chest covered in scratches where it appeared that Judy had actually fought back a little, and a hammer in his hand. The two, they they don't know what to think. These are like little kids. So they look at their father and he looks at them and he says, go back to bed. This is a nightmare. Oh. Yeah. 
It is. But like a real one. So scary. Mm-hmm. Marshall Ross, who had heard enough of that story in like 2.5 seconds to know that there were two innocent children and a dead woman in the house next door with a murdering doctor with a hammer. So he ran over, risking his own life and limb, to Glen the Glendower Place house to see what he could do. So this guy's like a hero, like run into the fire guy. Mm -hmm. Okay, way to go, Marshall Ross. I'm assuming he's bigger than Judy, so it made more sense. But first, he and Judy had called the damn cops. So he did also know that the police were on the way. Okay. Thank God. So when Marshall enters the house first, he finds the two younger Perelsons on the first floor waiting. They're like, what the fuck is happening? And so he tells them, he's like, listen, wait here, stay on the first floor. I'm going to go find your dad, assuming that he's still upstairs. And he might have been able to hear him because he was just pacing around. Yeah. Uh, and they're like, okay. In some recollections of the story, like Judy is there too, and she stays with them. In some, she isn't, I don't know that she went back in that house. I don't think I would. Um, but it's hazy. And of course, as soon as he went up the stairs, Marshall Ross absolutely found Dr. Harold Perelson. He was slowly wandering back and forth down the upstairs hallway, still covered in blood, still with the hammer in his hand. Harold looked at his neighbor and said, go on home. Don't bother me. Ooh. Again, absolutely not. Harold then walked into Judy's room, laid down, put his head on her bloody pillow, and closed his eyes. Oh. So that part's real. When police arrived at 5.15, Harold was still breathing. But by the time the ambulance arrived, which was just shortly after, they would have been dispatched at like the same time, Harold had died. According to what was found at the scene after Judy ran and before Marshall Ross arrived, so sometime in between 4.45 and 5 a.m., Harold Perelson walked into his bathroom, which was stocked to the brim with barbiturates and tranquilizers, and took as many of them as he could manage and walked back into the hallway. The coroner describes the scene like this, quote, Mrs. Perelson was found in a supine position and had been dressed in night clothes in twin bed and pillow, completely covered in blood. This did not awaken any other member of the family. Quote, they found the deceased, which would be Harold, on the floor beside the bed. His head was on the pillow that his daughter had used for it was covered with blood. Deceased was face down, his feet near the foot of the bed, and his head toward the closet. This was on the far side of the room away from the door. Deceased was still breathing at that time. Deceased expired before the ambulance arrived. Sometime before Mr. Ross arrived and the daughter left, the deceased went into the bathroom and took some pills. There were two partially dissolved yellow jackets in the sink, one crushed on the floor and a number of them around the room. The police had gathered most of these and put them in a dresser in his room before we arrived. A curious action, but I'm sure they had reasons. There were no notes found. There were blood spots throughout the upper parts of the house. The drawers in the bathroom where deceased kept his medicines were stained with blood smears. End quote. They also go on to describe how they found a number of small white pills scattered all around the bathroom, as well as some red and blue pills, which would be the other medication I spoke about when we described how he took his own life. And also, how you get into the matrix. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, and yellow jackets are the street term for Nembutal mm -hmm. because they come in bright yellow capsules. Okay. So uh, this coroner, I don't know why he's not using the medical name for this medicine. He's like, he got some yellow jackets. Okay. Hmm. Whatever. Poor babysitter Sherry remembers this little gem. Quote, 
When I opened the door in the morning when Shelly's parents came to collect her, so Shelly's parents are at this door, the whole door was a mass of blood. I remember my hand being in this sticky blood. She says her family covered over the peep window in the door for years. It scared me, she said. I insisted I couldn't deal with it. Yeah, you think? Yeah, how horrifying. Yeah, so she just opened the door to let her sleepover friend go to her parents, and it's just covered in blood. Imagine being Shelly's parents. What the fuck? I know, Jesus. I know. After the investigation was done, some cleanup may have occurred, but really not much. Right. They mostly leave that for the family. That's to true. Do, and too. That's what I said. The police are not actually responsible for such a task. Yeah. In this day and age, there are entire companies dedicated to crime scene cleanup. They have Instagrams, if you like a thing mm-hmm. like that. You can see all kinds of weird shit. But again, you have to like get them. You yourself. have to hire them. Yeah. But even the hiring is a job that is intended for the family. They have to yeah. pay for it. But back in those days, it wasn't entirely uncommon for family members to have to actually, like, roll up their sleeves and scrub off the blood themselves. Well, that's why it's, like, in shows when you watch that happen, yeah. it's, like, not—that's it. accurate. Yeah, it is. Yeah. That's what they would have been doing, mm-hmm. which to us seems, like, so outside like, oh, of humanity. Like, yeah. That's so dramatic. And you're like, oh, no, nope. that's nope. what you that's do. That's what you would have to do. <laughs> Awful. But uh, the Perelson children certainly weren't going to do any of that, so— no, kind of left it. Lillian, they were sick of cleaning. <laughs> hey, that was the other kid. Yeah, that's true. But they also were like, fuck that. We're not cleaning this up. Oh, no, absolutely not. Yeah. How traumatizing. I know. So after everything, Lillian's family took on Joel and Debbie. And Judy at that point was a legal adult. So she didn't need a guardian, but was still taken in by family members. So okay. they weren't like, you're on your own. Bye. Yeah. She stayed with them, too. She just didn't need to be appointed a guardian. Mm. In 1960, the Enriquez family from Lincoln Heights purchased the Glendower house for their only child, a beloved son named Rudy. But it would appear that they never lived there. Remember we said this house, this family bought it, moved in for a minute, and then ran away in the middle of the night. And there's also versions of this story, which I didn't tell in the opening just because it was more fun to use that one. But there are also versions of this story where they bought it and never moved in. They just bought it, and then they used it for what appeared to be storage. Yeah. But why would they never live there? And why didn't Rudy ever live there? Well, the answer to this part is simpler and sadder than it might seem. The Enriquez family was from Mexico, and the 60s were a rather racist time, even in liberal California. Even though they had substantial wealth, as Mrs. Enriquez came from money, and the couple ran a gas station and car repair shop together for years, the neighborhood did not exactly welcome them with open arms. In fact, Los Feliz properties were not even supposed to be sold to families from redlined neighborhoods such as Lincoln Heights because they were seen as too poor to be an asset to the community. Ew. Yeah. A.K.A. Not white. Yeah. But given the special circumstances of the Glendower estate, the family, being the Perelson kids who clearly didn't want it, and realtors just wanted it sold. Plus, it really does have a long history with not being sellable. Mm -hmm. So the house went to the highest bidder at a probate auction, and the Enriquez family had the money to pay up front. Okay. These are not poor people. And they had worked for years putting away every cent they could for their dutiful and beloved son, Rudy. 
a simple and pious man who managed a record store and had dreamed of becoming a Catholic priest for a time, but didn't want to leave his parents. His mother told him, like, if you become a priest, they could put you at any church, and, and then you may be far away from me. And he was like, then I won't do that. Aw. I know. So, did the Enriquez... It's so weird, though. It is. <laughs> well, it's... You, a, lot of, a lot of families, like, dream to have their children become a priest. I know. Mm. <laughs> so, did they ever live there? Well, not really. But they did stay there on occasion, and they stored things in the house. And Mrs. Enriquez was sighted there from time to time, caring for the landscaping. They were, like, around. Yeah. But they didn't unpack, really. They had some of their things in there, but they just layered them on top of what was already there. Right. Which was everything the Perelson family owned, because the house was sold with everything in it, kit and caboodle. Huh. We'll get more into that in a second. Rudy also stored a lot of things in the house, like the clothing that was found in the closets. A lot of that belonged to Rudy, not the doctor. And he would spend time there managing his finances and caring for a couple cats he brought in to keep him company. He even reused some of Dr. Perelson's patient files, so like papers with doctor's notes written all over them. He reused the papers to put his own financial records on. He just like crossed stuff out and was like, I guess, waste not, want not. So weird. Yeah. And this also explains the food in the cabinets and the items found in the house that seem to be more from the late 60s and so on. Okay. While there was no Christmas tree the last time anyone was in the house, complete with its contents, and later on, a house painter who really likes to make up stories said that he may have embellished when he went in that house a little bit. And said there was a Christmas tree when there wasn't one. I gotcha. Right. So that is also a part of the story that is kind of an embellishment. A lot of people swear they saw it, though. And whatever. It could have been there. Because Rudy did once wrap a bunch of Christmas presents in the front room. They did spend time around Christmas there. And he left the paper on the floor. Mm. So there was a bunch of old Christmas wrap there. My God. They're just, like, adding to the trash. Exactly. Huh? Exactly. He was a Catholic and a generous one at that, so he would be celebrating Christmas, unlike the Perelsons, who might have been incredibly generous. They just weren't Catholic. Rudy. What were they? They wouldn't have celebrated Christmas? No, they were Jewish. The Perelsons. Oh, Jew. oh yeah. right, right, right. Okay. Rudy gave Christmas gifts, on the other hand, to every mail carrier, server, cashier, and friendly face he met for coffee that entered his life. Mm. He would send, like, personalized cards and little gifts to everyone. He Cute. was a very thoughtful man who really appreciated the people that came into his life. He was just that good of a person. Like yeah. Everyone that talks about him has nothing but really beautiful things to say about him. However, he was also what a dear friend of his called a keeper, which is what we might know as a hoarder. Mm. Could all of the Perelson's belongings, complete with crime scene blood spatter, have really remained untouched in that house while Rudy and his family wandered around in it from time to time? Surely not. It seems insane. But yes, they did. Rudy's beloved parents, who did eventually pass, as sadly has Rudy now, bought him that house and everything in it. So every little spooky detail was important to Rudy because it was a gift from his parents. Though he just couldn't bring himself to live there because he really did prefer a smaller property. It's just one person. And they did have several properties. He also could never bring himself to sell it. A friend of Rudy's called the house, quote, a museum of his memories. Isn't that cute? It's 
No, it's fucking weird. It's sad, though, too. He was a hoarder who wanted to save parts of his parents. He was a keeper. He was a keeper. Okay. Okay. So well, I'm sorry. I don't want to make fun of him. I'm not trying no. to make fun of him, but it's still, it's like. It is. It is bizarre. There's also another story that um, where, like, he, his favorite aunt gave him a car when he graduated, but he couldn't drive. Right. But he never sold the car. He just saved it forever. It sat in his garage for 20 years. Just well, that's untouched. fine. That's an antique car. It's collectible. I, there you go. Maybe all of this. Well, <laughs> all right. had he actually itemized and sold everything in that house, he would have made millions of dollars because right. of its like folkloric, legendary status. Yeah. He didn't know that, though. Uh, so while he may not have formally lived there, Rudy Enriquez did get a kick out of all of the people whispering and sneaking into this house. Okay. He like loved this. He okay. thought it was really fun. He loved that they were looking for ghosts because you see, the only ghost in the Glendower house was him. Right. He was never afraid of his macabre gifted home because houses don't kill people. People do. Mm. About that, did we ever find out why Harold Perelson did what he did? Well, I think so. But there isn't any signed and sealed documentation. So we're just going to have to go with this as a allegedly or a theory. Okay. Once again, we can turn to some documents discovered afterwards when the Perelson estate went to probate court. First, Harold was in an enormous amount of debt, like right. John List level debt. Mm -hmm. That's where the two start to look very much the same. People also say that Harold was very concerned with appearances and how they had to buy this enormous house they couldn't afford and have all these cars and look like they were super wealthy even when they were in staggering amounts of debt. He never really did fully recover from the whole syringe thing, but he just kind of pressed forward as though he had. But he owed money everywhere. In probate court, there were bills to be reckoned. So this is where, like, your debts are settled after your death. He had bills from L.A. Power and Water, Right Stop Towing Company. Um, he owed back taxes to the IRS. He owed money to doctors and pharmaceutical companies. He owed a substantial amount of money to an elite military academy where the Perelsons had been sending their son, Joel. This was with, like, sky-high tuition, like $1,200 a month back then. So that's a lot. Right. Um, Which is why he should ask for more money for him. Sure. $10,000, that's it? Come that's on. It? Your, your investment pay better pay off a little more. Yeah. <laughs> they also discovered a bunch of bounced checks and an astronomical debt to a man named Dr. Max E. Barr. Specifically, they owed him $53,000 which in today's money is $474,000. Wow. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. What on earth is this for? Well, it turns out it was to purchase Englewood Medical Clinic. Remember his private clinic that he had? Well, it wasn't small. It was actually uh, like, a, like a small private hospital. The thing had like, you know, x-ray machines and newborn scales and at like the whole, it was a hospital. It was fully equipped. On January 1st, 1959, Harold and Lillian signed papers to purchase the Inglewood Medical Clinic and its entire practice from Dr. Max Barr. And this is just a year prior almost. This included everything in it, including equipment, medication, furniture, anything, and more. Several medical professionals, including a dentist, were also already practicing within this private hospital. So people were renting space in it for their medical practices as well. So... Harold had to pay rent for a space in his own hospital, for whatever reason, for his personal practice. I don't fully understand this, but it's listed in his debts, so there you have it. Strange. Yeah. And these expenses were bleeding the Perelsons dry. 
in addition to their astronomical monthly bills, not just for the whole entire hospital they bought, but also the school power water, car payments, mortgage payments, etc., they also owed a large lump sum that was due on January 1st, 1960, which would be less than a month after the killings took place because they took place on December 7th. And I can assure you they did not have that cash. Mm. This explains why Harold might have wanted to just call everything quits. But why just Judy and Lillian? Because the two younger kids, they stayed with him in the house and he told them to go back to their rooms. He purposefully did not kill them. Some people say that it's simple. Judy and Lillian spent money and the kids didn't. Were they to go bankrupt, those two would have understand, understood the financial problems. Kids just kind of roll with what you tell them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people say that he was very angry because, like I mentioned before, Lillian and Judy liked to live a pretty flashy lifestyle. Judy had that um, sweet sports car and all the shoes, and Lillian liked to buy furniture. So did Harold really just snap just like that? Not really just like that actually. Also in the probate records were bills from Temple Psychiatric Hospital, where less than a month prior to the murder-suicide, Harold had been committed for eight days. The situation had been an emergency. And while we don't know exactly what it was, we do know he was billed for a stomach tube and Foley catheter. Now, Foley catheter is put in when a person cannot empty their own bladder, and this usually happens when you're paralyzed or unconscious. Um, And the stomach tube could be to pump your stomach, could be to feed you if you are, again, unconscious. He is also billed for doses of Thorazine, a powerful antipsychotic. Now, I'm not sure how quiet one actually needs to be when they return from the heart hospital. But when you return from having a full nervous breakdown, I think quiet, quiet is the answer. So many speculate that Harold never had cardiac incidents. That was just something he told the neighbors. He did mm. instead have a history of frightening mental, mental health issues. Okay. It was even rumored that just before the murder-suicide occurred, Lillian had discussed having Harold committed full-time. It seems that he was not as well as everyone thought. Mm. After Dr. Perelson and his wife were gone, all of their assets, including all the money they had in the bank, the Glendower house and everything in it, the cars, both theirs and poor Judy's, which was a brand new Zippy MG. My mom used to drive one of those. They're really cool. Um, Plus their life insurance, all the medical equipment in the hospital and every other belonging they had did not equal to enough to pay off their debt. Wow. Yeah. Fortunately, Dr. Max Barr, whoever he was, was a generous man and settled for less than the full sum, leaving the Perelson children over $20,000 to kind of get them situated in life. Yes, very nice. And this was enough for them, really. I mean, they're kids at this point, mostly. Um, They didn't want anything to do with the house at that point, so they left to live with family and never look back. Oh, and do not try to find them. They are okay, but they most definitely do not want to be found. And that is a story of the Los Feliz murder mansion. Interesting. Yeah. Um, So, Judy's still alive? She is. They're all still alive. All three kids. Okay. Interesting. I also wonder if he, uh, that theory makes sense mm-hmm. why he went after like his wife and daughter. Yeah. But I also wonder if because he didn't finish his daughter. Yeah. If it just kind of like, I mean, he still seemed very out of it in yeah. that sense, but it just, maybe it just kind of threw him off of his plan anyway. Yeah. But, or, um, 
Or maybe he just didn't. He was like, yeah, they're like too little. It's fine. Or maybe he just truly was out of touch with reality. Yeah. That's what it seems like because the way he's like saying things. Yeah. It's almost like he was, it was almost like a sleepwalk. Yeah. Yeah. I I thought the same thing. It was like he was blacked out in some way. Yeah. And while you can, you can if you want, connect the dots and make this a family annihilator like John List list Mm -hmm. situation where he was just afraid of going bankrupt and instead killed everybody. I think the thread there is a little thinner Mm -hmm. than it is for him having serious mental health issues that were not, well, they were attended to a few times, but, you know, it was like putting a a Band-Aid on something far greater and they weren't treating it at the source. And while he had Thorazine at the hospital, who the hell knows what he was doing at home? Right, right. So truly we don't know. Mm -hmm. But I do think it stands to reason that issues with his mental health played a part in this 100%. incident. hundred percent. So, yeah. huh. The Los Feliz murder mansion, um, Los Feliz, sorry, murder mansion is still there. It was sold to, who was it? Gloria Allred's daughter in, I believe it's like 2008. And they were like going to remodel the house. And they like got all amped up and they, they're the ones who gutted it. They got rid of all the stuff and gutted the place. But then they didn't want it anymore and they bought another house. Uh, I know, like, people don't keep this house. They just don't, which was bought. I don't know who the most recent owner is, but they're the ones who had them, like, draw up those fake plans. Those plans that are like, this is what it could look like. Right. This is what it does look like. But it's on the market. So if you have over $5 million and you want to buy yourself a gutted murder house, please invite us over for dinner. After you fix it up. So I wonder, I could still see how the curse. Yeah. Um, oh, fits yeah. Because I wonder if it also has to do with like greed. Sure. That could be And it. that's why Rudy was never bothered. <gasps> that's a very good point because he was so generous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, in that area of Los Angeles, there's lots of greedy people. So. And one could argue that Dr. Perelson was one of them. As he was clearly not responsible with his money and living far beyond his means. Yeah. And he tried to do those things like, oh, my kids were in a car accident, so I want, like, way more money than their Mm -hmm. medical bills were for. Yeah. So you could definitely argue that he was greedy. Interesting. Yeah. No, that's that's very Mm -hmm. interesting. I like how that Mm kind of ties in. Okay. So maybe it was all a curse. We don't know. Toast? Toast. All right. We have lots of people. So, um... I would say to, obviously, Judy Perelson. Mm-hmm. She's not Judy Perelson anymore. Apparently, she's changed her names a lot of times. I don't blame her. Right. Of course. I feel like, no, no. No, I will not be traveling through the rest of my life with that name no. because everybody knows it. Yeah. Uh-huh. And not for a reason. I want them to. So, yeah, because that's she had some serious moments of badassery, like just running out of that house and getting right. help. And then the neighbor that helped. And yes. So what was his name? Marshall. 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 Yeah, just Marshall. Marshall and Judy, cheers. Well done. Mm -hmm. To Rudy. To Rudy. Oh, my God. So Stacy, the woman who did the long podcast that I'm going to link, guys, it's it's so good. You have to go listen to it. It's really good. She found out a lot of this because over the course of years, she befriended Rudy. They, like, got to be close. Okay. And after his death, 
she not only received a Christmas card posthumously from him, but she was invited by his family to all of his services and stuff because he said she was a friend. That's so nice. I know. See, you listen to that podcast. You got this whole other side of Rudy. I got the short and condensed version, I know. which makes it seem still kind of wacky. There, well, I mean, it it is undeniably wacky. Yeah, but you even got when you, you have a connection now. Yeah, even when you hear <laughs> the full extended version of Rudy, which comes from you know lots of people who loved him, and it is beautiful. Yeah, it is still a lot to wrap your brain around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there is no making like that be. Oh, that's easy. Yeah. Uh so. Also to uh, poor babysitter, Sherry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She had a really hard time. Into those stairs that make your booty pop. Yeah, stairs. Oh, and who who put the curse? Who's the curse person? Oh, uh, Donia. Do, is it Donia? Because it's like, la, la, how would you say that? Like D-O-N-A in Spanish. If there's a la, tilde la over Donia. it, Donia. Donia, right? Okay, yeah. so Donia Pet. Drania. Oh, yes. That curse was a fucking kicker of a curse. Yeah. She got in there. Yes. So. All right. And we also have Ooh. a new patron coming all the way from Finland. Ooh, hey, girl. We love an international patron. <laughs> Laura. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Laura. Cheers. We love you. She is a best fiend. Best fiend. Best Finnish fiend. Ooh. Mm-hmm. You know, I love alliteration. Yeah. And if we were caught up in an ancient and angry curse that lived in our stunning mansion, we, we would, would be, be dead. dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WouldBeDeadPod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. I made my money in apples.